Hello everybody and welcome to my latest edition of Ranked where I am taking on the recently concluded Phase 4 of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. This is the biggest phase for Marvel so far, encompassing their first batch of shows on Disney+, Plus, as well as several movies. Now this is something that I said that I probably wouldn't do again, which would be ranking Marvel stuff because way back when I was at Screen Junkies, we did a Marvel ranking video and it was probably the most comments that we ever got, angry comments about where we put stuff. But this is a little bit different because this is a much larger phase for Marvel. Marvel, and there's so many different types of movie and shows, different types of genres. I really did want to look into what I liked, what I responded to, what I didn't respond to, and talk about it. Speaking of my time at Screen Junkies, a little bit of a self-plug here, but I did a podcast with my old friends Joe Starr and Spencer Gilbert, who I worked with at Screen Junkies for many, many years. We got together, we chatted for about an hour, just having fun. We hadn't really talked to each other um, in a couple of years. If you want to listen to that conversation, we had a really great time. You can check the description below. Below. You'll see my links to my podcast feed on Apple Music, Spotify, etc. You can find it on a lot of different platforms. But if you'd like to hear that reunion between myself, Spencer, and Joe, you can get that right now. But let's get to the matter at hand. Now, this does not include specials like Werewolf by Night and the upcoming Guardians of the Galaxy holiday special. These are just the movies and shows that tied in directly to Phase 4. And I'll say up front that even though I'm going from bottom to top, I didn't really hate anything in this phase. Now, there were a lot of things that I thought were very uneven. As a matter of fact, I see this probably had the most uneven projects of any phase of the MCU so far, but there's nothing in this phase that I absolutely detested, just stuff that really didn't connect with me. So let's get to my number 15 Marvel project, my lowest ranked Marvel Cinematic Universe phase four movie or show. And if you watch this channel, this probably doesn't surprise you. It is She-Hulk Attorney at Law. Now, I know a lot of people are going to see this at the bottom of my list and assume that I thought it was the end of Western civilization and masculinity as we know it. But I don't actually hate this show. It just wasn't for me. As much as any project that Marvel has made thus far isn't for me. Things that I don't like, things that I hate are things that I think are poorly assembled, poorly acted, sloppily constructed, and I can't really throw any of that at She-Hulk. I actually thought it was really well acted, particularly by Tatiana Maslany. I think she's a great addition to the MCU. The visual effects were pretty rough, but I didn't find it poorly or sloppily produced overall. The storyline I thought needed work. The through line was non-existent through most of the series. Characters kind of drifted in and out, and the ending didn't really work for me, that fourth wall breaking ending. But the writing itself I didn't find horrible. It's mostly just that what was written wasn't really my style of humor. I didn't really find it entertaining to talk about Captain America getting laid. I didn't find it that entertaining to watch She-Hulk twerk with Megan the Stallion. And I'm probably one of the few people out there apparently that was not charmed by the eternally drunk Madison. Madison is with two N's. One Y, but it's not where you think. Could you just spell it for us? I get why others liked that stuff. It's just that I didn't. Daredevil's return was a highlight, and I thought that Charlie Cox and Tatiana Maslany had great chemistry. I hope to see them both teaming up again. But of all the TV shows and movies on this list, She-Hulk is the one that I am least likely to return to, and honestly, that I'm going to feel the least need to feel like I should return to. Bruce smashes buildings, I smash fourth walls, and bad ending. And sometimes Matt Murdock. Okay. Now get back to the show. At number 14 is the first Marvel movie on this list, and I've got to give Marvel credit for ambition on this one. It is Chloe Zhao's Eternals, which is a film unlike any other in the MCU. I fear that this movie struggles will make Marvel gun-shy about experimenting on movies like this again, and I hope that doesn't happen. You'll hear me say several times throughout this countdown that there is a Disney Plus show that I felt like should have been a movie, but this is a movie that I think absolutely should have been maybe the lead-off show 
for the Marvel Cinematic Universe on Disney+. In order to work, this movie has to pay off emotional connections between characters that happened over thousands of years, and the movie struggles to show us these connections or why we should really care. The backstory that seems awkwardly placed and rushed in this two and a half hour movie would probably have been a lot stronger in an eight to 10 episode limited series. I was interested in the world of the Eternals, it's just that the movie had to jump around so much and flashback and flash forward, and like I said, pay off these relationships that I didn't know enough about. I needed more time to understand what was happening, and so much of what happened in this movie, the betrayals and the love stories, would have landed so much harder if I had spent several hours with these characters instead of a movie's length. If Eternals hadn't started as a comic, I would have assumed that this was an original concept from a writer at Marvel who decided to pitch it as an MCU project in order to get his heady sci-fi movie made. But as we all know, Eternals was a comic. It still doesn't feel like it's really part of the MCU, and the fact that the events that happened in this movie haven't been referenced in any other project is pretty surprising considering that there is an enormous hand and a giant head growing out of the Earth at this point. There's room for the Eternals in the MCU, but the movie didn't make a very good case for what that place is. Instead, it's an awkward attempted hybrid of cerebral meditation and classic MCU movie, complete with a forgettable CGI big bad that doesn't really pay off in any way. Eternals also holds the distinction of containing two in-credit scenes, teasing projects that I have absolutely no interest in. Your friends are in big trouble. And we know where to find them. Next on the list is, as of today when I'm filming this review, the highest grossing Marvel film of the year, and that is Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness. This was apparently heavily influenced by the pandemic and coming out after Spider-Man No Way Home instead of before it affected the story. I don't know what the changes made were specifically, but I really don't know how much they would have changed my opinion of this movie overall. The big surprise in this movie was that Wanda goes full Scarlet Witch and is the villain of the film, and Wanda is both the movie's biggest strength and weakness. Strength, because Elizabeth Olsen is fantastic in the part and does make a great villain. Weakness, because the interesting part, Wanda's downfall, the thing that gives her character dimension, was skipped completely. And I have heard this so many times since May. I know that they tell us that Wanda was corrupted by the Darkhold. And we see the very beginning of that in the post credit scene of WandaVision and the results of that in Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness. But the showing of that downfall would have been so much more interesting than just bringing Wanda into this movie already as a fully fledged villain. They skipped a huge part of her character development and then seemingly, perhaps, maybe killed her off, although I don't think that anybody's ever really dead in the Marvel Universe. I don't think that they did Wanda's character justice. And so yes, that that's why I say she is the movie's biggest asset and its biggest liability. The Illuminati was great for a theater clap moment, but I thought that they were mainly a bust, just a group of cynical cameos that were dispatched far too easily by Wanda, no matter how powerful she is. The concept of the multiverse wasn't used as much more than a plot device or exploited to really do that much that was fun. Sam Raimi's touches keep the movie interesting. I love the undead Doctor Strange wearing a cloak of the damned, but Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness was ultimately a disappointment for me that wasted a good premise and a potentially fascinating character arc for Wanda, an arc that began in a project that's much higher up on this list than this movie. One thing Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness does have, though, that no other Marvel project can claim is Pizza Papa. And let's hope beyond hope that Pizza Papa is not exploited for a six-episode limited series in the near future. <laughs> it's over!
At number 12 on my list was a movie that I was somewhat positive on when it came out, but those positive feelings, as muted as they were, have started to fade in just a few short months, and that is Thor Love and Thunder, the second Thor film from Taika Waititi. His fancy-free attitude was refreshing in Thor Ragnarok, but that same attitude seemed overindulged in Thor Love and Thunder. The story is unfocused, the characters are inconsistent, the tone is all over the place, and as talented as Chris Hemsworth and Natalie Portman are, they can only hold it together so much through sheer strength of will, which is a problem when you have a movie with a $250 million budget. Jane as the Mighty Thor deserved her own movie instead of sharing time with a half-baked revenge tour story starring Christian Bale's Gore the God Butcher. Like a good number of Phase 4 projects, Thor Love and Thunder seems caught in limbo between the future and the past and feels most like, if anything, a missed opportunity. What about if I had, like, a cool catchphrase, like, eat this hammer, <laughs> or like... Check out my hammer. At number 11, and kind of transitioning out of the disappointment part of the countdown and more into the it was okay part, is a movie that might surprise a lot of people, and that's Black Widow. Maybe it's because so many of the other movies took big swings and misses, but Black Widow felt a lot more solid on my rewatch than some of the others. Not that it's a great movie, it slides in just this side of acceptably standard. It's not helped by the fact that this movie was made six years too late starring a character that had already been killed off. But one thing that Black Widow does have that a lot of the other projects lower on the countdown don't is new standout characters, namely Florence Pugh as Yelena and David Harbour as Red Guardian. They've already appeared or soon will appear and other Marvel projects for a reason. They're great actors and they're given fun characters who are also allowed to be serious when they need to. Scarlett Johansson had been playing this role for over a decade when Black Widow hit theaters and streaming in summer 2021, the first MCU film to be released after theaters closed due to the COVID-19 pandemic. I think if this movie had come out in 2018, people would see it as an integral piece of the puzzle, but it didn't. It came out after Black Widow had been killed off in Infinity War, and so a lot of people see it as disposable. The Black Widow movie being an afterthought is definitely discouraging, but it still contains some pretty solid action set pieces and an okay story. Marvel's done solo films better and they've done spy thrillers better, but Black Widow certainly isn't bottom of the barrel. And in a batch of movies and shows that took huge swings and largely missed, either due to bad concept or bad execution, sometimes a solid double feels a lot better than striking out swinging. Natasha, don't slouch. I'm not slouching. Yes, yes, you are. You're going to I get don't the, slouch. You're going no. to get the back hunch. Listen to your mouth. Oh my God. This. Up, up. At number 10 is the show that follows directly from the post credit scene of Black Widow. Hawkeye. The best and worst thing that I can say about Hawkeye is that I haven't thought about it for one second after it stopped airing. That's no insult to Jeremy Renner, who does a great job with Hawkeye, now perplexed and world-weary, or Haley Steinfeld, who I'll be happy to see pop up in future MCU projects. It's just a very low-stakes, standard story featuring a series of forgettable villains that culminates in the reintroduction of Vincent D'Onofrio's Kingpin, now 50% more cartoonish. One thing Hawkeye has going for it is the Christmas setting. Anything set at Christmas gets an automatic tonal upgrade. It's almost not fair. Florence Pugh livens things up about halfway through returning as Yelena. She really is great in this part. And there are a few neat action sequences, but Hawkeye the show is as safe and predictable as Hawkeye the Avenger. It's unlikely to achieve anything truly heroic, but it's nice to know that it's there in the background doing solid work.
At number nine on my list is a show that would have been much higher if it had been able to nail the super heroics more, and that's Miss Marvel, which was a much better show about a young girl, her family, their shared history, and the complicated journey involved with being an outsider than it was a show about a superhero. Iman Vellani is an absolute star who owned this role from the first second of Miss Marvel. Its success in my eyes has so much to do with her obvious enthusiasm for the part. I often don't turn to Marvel for my history lessons, but the show's journey into Pakistan and partition were fascinating to me, as were the family dynamics of Kamala Khan, her parents and siblings, and their extended relations. The gee whiz, that's cool part of being a superhero was handled well on screen, but I thought that the actual superpowers themselves were pretty goofily rendered. I understand that they were comics accurate, but sometimes you have to adapt things a little bit more for live action. It's always a good sign though when I look forward to seeing more of a character on screen and not just their powers, and Kamala Khan has boosted my enthusiasm level for the Marvels quite a bit. It's a shame really that this show had such reported low ratings. I think part of it was that it was going up literally at the same time as Obi-Wan Kenobi for a lot of its run. I feel like a lot of people didn't give Ms. Marvel a chance for a number of reasons. Regardless, it was one of the biggest surprises of MCU Phase 4 for me, and I look forward to the character of Ms. Marvel and and maybe even the show growing from its solid roots here. Kamal means Marvel. I share the same name as Carol freaking Danvers. I don't know who that is. At number eight is a show that definitely falls into the it should have been a movie category, and that's The Falcon and the Winter Soldier. This story did not need six episodes to tell, and as a movie, I think it still would have been a worthy introduction to Sam Wilson as Captain America, and perhaps could have even been executed in the vein of something like The Winter Soldier. I love the character work done here, Sam's struggle with taking on Cap's shield, Bucky trying to atone for his past, and the introduction of John Walker as the new Captain America, later U.S. agent, who is eternally trapped in the shadow of Steve Rogers. The story of Isaiah Bradley was also interesting, harkening back to the Tuskegee experiments, one of the darkest chapters in recent American history. And the combination of just those factors, I think, would have been a really solid movie, but because this is a Disney Plus show with six episodes, we have the addition of a whole lot of other characters who, while they were nice to see, didn't really add that much to the plot. It was great to see Zemo, he's a great dancer, but I don't really think it did that much to advance the story of the show. The Dora Milaje were great to see outside of Wakanda, but again, it just sort of added to the running time. And we have Sharon Carter. Great to see her again, but I'm not even really sold on this change of character for her. The Flag Smashers were villains born of an interesting story idea, but not really developed. I think it's possible that their story was heavily influenced by changes due to COVID-19. And yes, the message does get a bit heavy-handed as the series draws to a close. Still, it's great to see Sam recognized as the official Captain America. The Walker story is great. There are several great action slash fight sequences, and Sebastian Stan does some fine dramatic work throughout. I talked about a lot of these shows and movies being uneven. This is a show that had very high peaks and low valleys, but the high highs are enough for me to put it on this list right in the middle at number eight. That's the Black Falcon there. I tell you. Now, that's Captain America. Before we continue with the countdown, I would like to thank the sponsor for this video, Masterclass. With Masterclass, you can dive deep into your own area of interest with some of the world's best minds anytime, anywhere, and at your own pace. Obviously, I'm a movie fan, and you probably are too. In the entertainment field alone, you can spend hours with Martin Scorsese learning about filmmaking, or with Spike Lee learning about how to be an indie filmmaker, or with David Lynch learning about how to be David Lynch. 
And there are over 180 instructors teaching classes in 11 categories. I sat down yesterday and watched these specific lessons on editing from Martin Scorsese and Spike Lee's classes, and it was as interesting and insightful as any course that I took in college. And each class is segmented into clearly labeled lessons that I can consume when I can across multiple platforms. This isn't theory, this is the real experience of some of the best minds alive in their field. And I'm already looking forward to checking out Bill Nye's class on science and problem solving, and that doesn't even begin to scratch the surface. I highly recommend that you check it out this holiday. Give one annual membership and get one free. Go to masterclass.com slash Merle today. That's masterclass.com slash Merle, M-U-R-R-E-L-L, and terms do apply. At number seven was my most anticipated Disney Plus show, the only one that's also animated, and that is What If. People don't talk about What If much, but I really liked this series. I grew up reading the comics, and maybe it's the morbid side of me taking over, but I enjoy stories where our heroes aren't safe and where the world often ends up really dark and just bleak and nihilistic. Whether it's T'Challa in space or Ultron with Infinity Stones or the long-awaited Marvel zombies, What If brought us stories that would never have made the big screen, despite the appearance of Captain Carter in Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness. The animation was well done, and the vocal presence of so many actors from the MCU roster was a huge plus. Unfortunately, this will also go down as Chadwick Boseman's last performance as T'Challa in the MCU. Power and end can be a very volatile force, cousin. It will get the best of you eventually, on your plane or on ours. The turn towards serialization at the end of the season is something that I have mixed feelings about. I like the story that they told, but I also want this show to have the freedom and the flexibility to go anywhere and do anything. But what if was so much fun and so unpredictable that I'm looking forward to its upcoming second season? My only hope is that there isn't too much pressure to integrate it into the MCU because the Watcher should always be on the sidelines, telling us stories of realities that never came to pass. At number six is a movie that introduced a new character to the Marvel Cinematic Universe, Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings. Simu Liu is another talent who embraced his role so enthusiastically that you can see it on screen. Shang-Chi falls into a lot of Marvel conventions, but its embrace of Chinese culture and mythology helps to offset things like the big third act army fight or the showdown between two superpower beings with similar powers. The martial arts and fight choreography is top notch, lending some freshness to the fight sequences and the third act dragon finale is just really cool looking even though it's what we see in every marvel movie tony leong brings a hardness and a sympathetic edge as shang chi's father the leader of the ten rings and michelle yo kicked off her big comeback run with a turn as shang chi's aunt and elder of the mystical land of tao lo Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings could have been your standard origin story, and in some ways it still is, but it feels different, particularly with director Destin Daniel Cretton at the helm. It's entertaining, it's funny, the cast is good, the action is well staged. If this was a phase one movie, I think people would have really been blown away by it. As it is, it still remains a solid entry in Marvel Phase 4. Shang. 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 S-H-A-N-G. Shang. Shang. At number five is the movie that brought a close to the fourth phase of the MCU, the one that's currently in theaters, and that's Black Panther Wakanda Forever. 
I said most of what I wanted to say in both of my Wakanda Forever reviews. You can see those on the channel. This movie was one of the toughest to place on this countdown because it is the newest movie and it also has to deal with the real-life tragic loss of Chadwick Boseman. Like so many other Phase 4 projects, it definitely has peaks and valleys, but those peaks are pretty high. It's very possible that this may slip a position or two over time, or maybe gain one or two positions, but I do think that Ryan Coogler presides over a movie that both pays tribute to the past we know with T'Challa, and introduces an intriguing future with Namor, and a new generation ready to take on the leadership of Wakanda. What reason do you have to reveal your secret to the world? I am not a woman who enjoys repeating herself. Who... Are you? At number four is a show that for a long time I thought might be number one on this list. The only thing holding it back was some issues that I had with the ending, and that is Loki. You weren't born to be king, Loki. You were born to cause pain and suffering and death. That's how it is. That's how it was. That's how it will be. Sophia DiMartino's Sylvie was a great surprise reveal as a Loki variant, and she allowed Loki to be seen from the outside and judged by the only being whose opinion he really cares about, his own. Richard E. Grant was also wonderfully chaotic as classic Loki in the couple of episodes where we saw just how far down the rabbit hole we can go with Loki variants. And Owen Wilson was the addition to the MCU that I didn't know we needed. If Loki was just a workplace comedy set inside the TVA featuring Mobius and Loki, I would still tune in every week. Let's just say, what are you doing? Your salad is Asgard. No, in this scenario. it's not Asgard. It's, That's it's my a metaphor. lunch. Just hang in there. I want and... that salad. But the ambition of Loki was so much bigger, and a lot of credit for that has to go to Michael Waldron, who created the show, the writing team behind it, and Kate Heron, who directed all six episodes of season one. I mentioned the ending holding me back. That's because it introduces kind of the next MCU, Big Bad Kang, or at least a variant of him. And while many found this intriguing, I found it to be a bit snoozy and a very long expositional sequence in a finale that stopped the momentum of the show and its tracks. I'm still not quite sure how the TVA, the sacred timeline, and the multiverse all fit together, and quite honestly, I'm not really sure Marvel does either. But it was a great ride from week to week, and Tom Hiddleston continued the journey that we'd seen him begin so many times as Loki, one of regret and reckoning with his true legacy. In addition to Hiddleston, this show had one of the best ensemble casts on television, and I'm anxious to see what's in store next season. I never stab anyone in the back. You've literally stabbed people in the back like 50 times. I'd never do it again. These top four really were really tough for me to rank between four and one, and it came down to little tiny things. I also expected that this show might have been a little higher, but it's such a close contest. At number three is WandaVision, and the only reason WandaVision is down at number three is the extended intro in the 60s sitcom world, which I think was stretched a little bit too far. But once we get into the bulk of the show, I thought it was the most exciting MCU project in a very long time. Elizabeth Olsen was nominated for an Emmy for playing Wanda, unfortunately in the same year that Kate Winslet won everything for being in Mayor of Easttown. But this show proved that both Wanda and Elizabeth Olsen were just waiting for the spotlight, the right showcase for this character, because there was so much left for us to go into. It really does prove the potential of a character-based show on Disney+, Plus, where you have multiple episodes. This was a good use of the longer format. Elizabeth Olsen is heartbreaking as the layers of the world that Wanda has created for herself are peeled back. The abrupt turn in her story arc for Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness makes me angry because of how good she was in this show. Paul Bettany also brought a lot of new depth to Vision and gave us one of the best quotes ever generated by the MCU, just brutal and true in its simplicity. But what is grief? If not love, 
persevering. And let's not forget that this show also gave us Catherine Hahn and Agatha. It was her all along. And I killed Sparky too. WandaVision was a show that very easily went viral on social media and elsewhere. Maybe it's because there was such a thirst for Marvel stuff after a long break, but I think it's because the show's humanity really connected with the audience, myself included. The only thing holding it back were a few narrative dead ends, as I mentioned the overlong 60s setup, the confusing and frustrating introduction of Evan Peters as not Quicksilver, and a finale that delivered a lot more of what we've seen before, but the acting in WandaVision is superb, most of the story is pretty strong, and it kept me on the edge of my seat week to week to find out what would happen as the mysteries of what was going on began to unfold. You are my sadness and my hope. At number two is a show that I like more than most, and that's Moon Knight. It's probably because of Oscar Isaac, who was shamefully ignored by the Emmys. His performance in this show is probably one of the best in the entire MCU, movie or streaming, maybe the best, playing double and eventually triple duty Isaac grounded Moon Knight with work that was at turns pained, humorous, tragic, broad, subtle, and ultimately revelatory. Oscar Isaac alone would be reason to tune into the show, but then you add Ethan Hawke as Arthur Harrow, another Marvel villain seeking to make the world better by destroying a hefty part of it. F. Mary Abraham also lent great humor and menace as the voice of Khonshu, the god who granted Isaac's Mark Specter the power of Moon Knight. Like most MCU shows and movies, Moon Knight didn't exactly stick the landing, but I will say that the penultimate episode was maybe my favorite next-to-last episode of any Marvel show. And yes, it probably should have or could have been a movie, but I thought that Moon Knight was next-level in its performances and in its look and feel, largely thanks to directors Mohamed Diab, Aaron Moorhead, and Justin Benson. The show had its shortcomings, sure, but I was continually blown away by what Moon Knight was able to achieve as a streaming show, and if I was Kevin Feige, Moon Knight would be my standard bearer for what is possible in the streaming medium for Marvel on Disney+. Layla dies, that's on your head. It'll be all your fault. No, 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 you can't! We're 14 down, which means there's just one MCU project left. It's my number one, and it was easily number one for me, and that is Spider-Man No Way Home. Not just my favorite MCU project of Phase 4, but one of my favorite MCU movies ever, and one of my favorite movies last year. Spider-Man No Way Home could have been a cheap cameo fest, largely kind of what I felt like Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness was, but instead, it became one of the best Spider-Man stories ever told. Bringing back Andrew Garfield and Tobey Maguire was an easy call from a popularity standpoint, but you risk Tom Holland being overshadowed in his own movie. Instead, No Way Home is a story about Tom Holland's Peter Parker, and now his struggles echo what it means to be Spider-Man across every universe. Going to see No Way Home was one of the best theatrical experiences I've ever had in my life, and I think it was probably heightened by the fact that we were coming out of theater closures due to the pandemic, but even if there had never been a pandemic, I think it would have been largely the same. I actually remember the second time I saw No Way Home more than I remember the first time because I knew where the big cheer moments were and most of the people in the audience didn't. It was like being able to sit in the Super Bowl and know that your team was about to throw the winning touchdown pass and be able to soak in not the event that was happening on the field, you already knew that was going to happen, but the audience, the crowd response around you. It was an energy and an electricity that you don't feel very often. A handful of movies in my lifetime, I can say, had that kind of electricity and just the joy that was being generated by this film. 
I've watched Spider-Man No Way Home, according to Letterboxd, four times in the last year, which is really unusual for me. And that's because I just love this movie. I love watching it. It's packed with moments and performances I love, not just from Tom Holland, Andrew Garfield, and Tobey Maguire, but also Jamie Foxx, Alfred Molina, Zendaya, Benedict Cumberbatch, Marissa Tomei, and Willem Dafoe finally and truly unleashed as the Green Goblin we all knew he could be. Norman? Norman's on sabbatical, honey. The hell? There are plenty of people who didn't care for this film, but I'm not one of them, and frankly, this race wasn't even close. No Way Home is a truly cross-generational film that doesn't just go for cheap cameos and clap moments, but true heart stemming from a love of Spider-Man and his history. It's a fantastic movie that I will continue to revisit again and again, and it sits atop of Marvel Phase 4. Okay, Peter 1, Peter 2. Peter 2. Peter 3. Peter 3. All right, let's do this. Let's ready? Wait, 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 wait. I love you guys. And that's my breakdown. What did you think? Were there movies and shows that were higher or lower than I ranked them? I'm sure there were because everybody has their own tastes and their own preferences. Let me know down in the comments below. And as always, thank you so much for watching. I'll be back very soon with more movie news, reviews, box office, ranking videos, and more. Until next time, stay safe, and I'll see you then. Bye. Only 4% of universities in the U.S. are R1 research institutions, and Temple University is one of them. This means 100% of students have the opportunity to participate in hands-on learning and research with world-class faculty. With over 600 academic programs across 17 schools and colleges, Philadelphia's largest public university provides students with a rich variety of opportunities and propels graduates to succeed in their careers. Temple University. Schedule a campus tour today at admissions.temple.edu.